welcome to Evolve to Succeed, the podcast that brings together entrepreneurs, founders, business leaders, and experts to talk about their journeys and explore the link between personal and business success. I'm your host, Juan Munson, founder of Evolve, a coaching, training, and development company focused on enabling business and personal success and creating a community of like-minded individuals. Whether that be through our peer groups, one-to-one coaching, our training and development programs for you and your teams, or through our content and events, our mission is to get the best out of each individual and inspire them to be better both in life and in business. If you want to learn more about Evolve, including our beautiful co-working space in Ashley Cross in Paul, then please go to evolvemembers.com where you'll find great content, insights, details of all of our services, and also information on our forthcoming events. For now though, let's get on with the show. Welcome. This week I'm talking to Richard Easton, founder of Ferreira Urbanism, an award-winning design practice that connects community with urban planning projects to design thriving hubs of activity that benefit people, the natural environment, and the local economy. Amongst other achievements and accolades, Richard has been nominated as one of the four most inspiring people in the planning and design profession by the Royal Town Planning Institute's Young Planner Survey. He has led the preparation of urban framework plans for Liverpool, Hemel Hempstead, Preston, Weymouth and Bexley Heath, as well as the production of neighbourhood plans for the community groups in Kent, Hampshire and East Sussex. In this conversation, Richard and I have discussions on topics ranging from his deep self-awareness and how that influences his personal and professional outlook, the collective benefits of sharing public spaces and the future of the town centre, to how a welcoming town centre can bring the physical and digital world together, and the joy of a sense of self-determination that running his own business has given him. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Richard, to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. Thanks, Warren. It's great to have you on the podcast to talk about, you know, the business, your entrepreneurial journey yourself, but also about, you know, urbanism and the projects you've been involved in. But we should start to give our listeners a little bit of context. So please tell us a little bit about Ferrier Urbanism and its growth and development since 2007. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's um, it's been a journey, and um, it's uh, it's a business that works in the urban design and urban planning sector. Um, and my background has been um, in that sector since I well, since I first started work in early twenties. Um, but in two thousand and seven, I'd, I'd worked for several larger organisations um, in that same sector. But um, life-changing year I became a dad okay. uh, for the first time and parenthood and the family situation um, and I wanted to work in a way that could accommodate that change that okay. lifestyle change and um, by setting up my own business um, it gave me that flexibility it, it meant that I could still pursue my interests in that field that uh, I was gaining experience in all the time but I could um, uh, flex it around this newfound responsibility <laughs> yeah um, and that's 2007. Um, the, the person in question is now 15 years old and taller than me. <laughs> um, and a reminder of that journey, really. Um, 
So um, yeah, that, that's the background to it. And, it's um, really interesting. My daughter was born, <laughs> yeah, six months into my kind of journey from leaving corporate life and starting a business. And I, I'm exactly the same, yeah. Richard. I sort of use Alex as this little bit of a reference point as to how long I've been doing this. It's strange, yeah, isn't it? It is. And um, you know, the business has gone on, gone on its journey, and um, my son's gone on his. I got a daughter as well now. A couple of years after that, and um, and that, that ability to to continue pursuing your sort of passion, which is also your job and your career, and, and it brings an income in with it, um, alongside um, spending the time um, with a family. It's been it's been remarkable, really. So, um, so that's the origin of it. Um, and um, in that time, we've worked on a, you know, in, in, I think in that time, I've worked on projects that I wouldn't have had the chance to work on had okay. I remained in that maybe larger, more corporate environment. I think that the size of the business, which is a micro business really, it's allowed us to pick up really interesting bits of work with community groups and parishes and smaller scale clients that nevertheless has been financially rewarding, but also professionally um, really, really interesting. And I think, um, so th- there's lots of things that have lined up nicely around that. Brilliant. And we're definitely going to come and talk to you about you know, community and a sense of community and how that can be created this would you know it would be worth just touching on that because i think you know the other thing about business is everybody starts business for a different reason different purpose don't they and i want to talk to you about your purpose and and that, and that kind of piece but i should first perhaps ask do you think you're always destined to run your own business uh that's a good question about destiny and fate and um no, uh, no. Um, I think I'm I'm a subscriber of the the school of thought that the universe is chaotic and random, uh, <laughs> rather than predetermined or written in the stars. And um, I think that it was, in a way, um, a response to circumstances. It wasn't a, a long term plan. It's not. It wasn't on a list of things I wanted to achieve by a certain age, in in the way that it might be for other people. But I'd reached a point where. Um, it was clear to me that if I wanted to, if I wanted to have a, a very involved role bringing up my children, that it, it was a necessary move, really. Okay. And uh, circumstances combined at that point in time where it seemed it was the right thing to do, and it's uh, it's remained that way. Brilliant. And what's really interesting, as we know, talk to lots of business owners, leaders, reflect again on my own story. Is you know, sometimes we have these great. Um, intentions in life particularly around kind of balance and spending time with the family especially with children as they're growing up and you really had that intention this can hear that loud and clear have you truly been able to remain true to that and run a business it's uh i suppose um it's the, the life's all these competing factors isn't it i suppose and uh, the pulls and the pushes in different directions and i think there is a sense of regret, I suppose, or a sense of missed opportunity, maybe, that the business, um, we're in our 16th year now, and it, for a long, many years in its early days, it was just myself, basically operating as a sole practitioner, as a, as a solo consultant. Um, and then about 2012, 2013, it, we started to take on a couple of staff, and it, it grew, and at one point, there was five of us working as this integrated team. Um, but it, in recent years, it's back to me. So I suppose people that do set up their own businesses always think one day it's going to be 
you know, where's the headquarters going to be and how many offices <laughs> we have around the country and which will your first overseas base be and <laughs> when it gets valued on the stock market, how much, how many millions will you walk away with? That's the trajectory or the, or the conventional trajectory of what a business entrepreneur might think about. That never, that was never the ambition. If that had happened, I would have been, I would have welcomed it, I suppose. Yeah. But those things sort of, in a way, are out of your control. And I think the question there is, can you really run? I mean, you suppose people that want to, people that are driven to do that, just put 24-7 into mm. it, to the exclusion of other things. And I've, I've never been that, I've never been that sort of person. I've always had quite a balanced point, point of view on work, life, sport, hobbies, um, time off, time on. And um, and uh, making sure that you, you stay sort of sane through that. Yeah, it's good. And it, but it, but it's interesting because again, you know, we've got a variety of different business owners, business leaders that listen to this podcast. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that you know started the business as you built it to five back to you. When have you been at your happiest <laughs> in the business? Do you think? <clears throat> I'll be uh, completely frank when I'm on my own. I think yeah. that, well, it's strange. I really enjoy leading teams and I really, I've really enjoyed, um, you know, maybe we talk about some of the highlights, but the highlights of some of our work is when we've been collaborating and I have had a small team around me and we've done great things as a result. Um, and that, those projects really are, you know, things to look back on with pride. And I've enjoyed, I do enjoy um sort of coordinating that the, the different skills the different roles that, that a team brings but it, it is stressful mm-hmm. I don't um I know it is because I've, I've been there and um there is a certain ability to focus more on the content and the ideas when it is just yourself in a mm-hmm. business and some of those other time management uh, process managements um aren't as aren't as acute yeah it's interesting i'm already this is the first you know you walk through the door this is the first time we've met richard but i'm also already getting this impression of somebody that is probably very much in tune with themselves and self-aware yes i am yeah and how's that come about because again that's a great strength to have and if you you reflect and give some hints and tips about others and the journey you've been on to get to that place i don't really know actually about that but I, i think there is a sense that i know I know who I am. I know what makes me tick. I know, I know the things that have matter and the things that um, the things that can be uh, that tap into that. The, the activities or the places or the the ways of working that tap into the the things that that are me and make me myself. And I think I'm also aware of the things that that uh, pull pull me away from that core mm. sort of um, sense of self. Um, so yeah, um, how you arrive at that point, I wouldn't know. <laughs> Life, I suppose. I think, I think maybe um, going back. I think lots of lots of miles on a bicycle. Oh. <laughs> that gives you that that gives you time to work out who you are. Yeah, we have a shared passion. <laughs> yeah. that I've just found out. Um, so it's just interesting, isn't it? Because again, I do, you know just to reflect is that we all start businesses. We all think what we're setting out. You've said what somebody's typical journey is, but I think you know for those who that can get to the place where the business is serving them rather than them serving the business, that's a great place to be and a great achievement. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it, yeah. That um, it's that way around, yeah. Definitely. So to give some context to our listeners about what you do as a business, perhaps you could just talk to us about some of the projects that you've been 
involved in that may impact us all and you know get, put into context a bit more about what the business does yeah um when i was um when i was a, if we're going back to my sort of teenage formative years at a levels and you're in that sort of there's this idea that you need to think about your career and what you do at university and um and i was always interested in towns and cities and and the urban environment and how the places in which we live have developed and formed but when i read what a town planning degree consisted of it was not very inspiring <laughs> and uh, at the same time looking at what you would study as an architect at university also had a sort of very limited role to it so i sort of bided my time in it and did a geography degree in sheffield and it was that it was the urban geography that started to really make me feel that there's a, a bigger picture to be understood about towns and cities and, and the, the factors that inform them so that was my undergraduate and i, I, I was back to that position of not quite knowing what to do next and it was only by chance reading uh, a course at Manchester University which was called Urban Design and I still vividly remember reading the first few lines of the course description and thinking that's the thing that I've been looking for. It sits between the, the process, maybe the bureaucracy of, of the planning legislation, town planners, what they do, the creativity of an architect but it's very much limited or potentially around the site or the building. But this urban design that I was reading about, it sat between these two things and it was about design-led creative involvement in creating neighborhoods and places and the, that scale in between the, the district or the, the, the city and, and the building itself. And I, I signed up for that course and I haven't looked back. So it, urban design is a, it's a, an area which is increasingly important because it bridges the gap between how we plan our towns and cities and what the buildings do. So in that field, our role is um, particularly uh, working with communities and uh, interest groups, non-professional interest groups, people that live and work in these towns and cities to help them give, a, give them a voice to shape them through urban design proposals and through responses to those forces that shape the places we live. So our client base is... Um, typically public sector, parish and town councils, but also district and city councils. Um, they'll appoint us to help them with problems or challenges around that. We also have some private sector clients that we work with that, that want to have some visioning ideas around what makes a town work and how we can improve that. Okay. And, you know, I suppose there's a big question here, isn't it, about you know town centres, the places we live, the changing world, you know, digitalization, homework, and all of the things that are perhaps definitely impacted since you started the business in 2007, yeah. but even in the last five years. And, and I suppose it's a really big question and too simplistic to ask, but, you know, where do you think the world's going and how and how we use our town centres and spaces, Richard? That's that's the, well, there, you know, you've that's the question, Warren, that everyone's been, that we're all trying to answer. And I think the thing, going back to my... Uh, my interest in towns and cities as a teenager, you know, the history of them, that we still are attracted, you know, the, um, we still want to be in them and, and people um, want to be with other people. And the human condition is to be close to one another. And, you know, we invented as a, as a, as a species this idea of the town, which then became the city. And um, we're not going to escape from that. I don't, we will always have this need for proximity and the collective benefits that come with sharing that space in, 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 a, in, a, in a city centre. 
the current debate is around, you know, very, you know, in the long sweep of human history, we're in a point in time where the internet has disrupted how people buy things. The retailers has struggled. The pandemic meant that we maybe shopped more locally. So that the trip into town became the trip to the local high street. But these are trends around a three, five year cycle. Um, and I think one way to look at town centers is about exchange. And the origin of a town center was about exchanging goods. It may have been a merchant would have come to the town center and exchanged goods in return for some other goods, or it may have been money paid for those goods. And then exchange of ideas. People would meet for a coffee and cha- you know, in the, in the Middle Ages and, and use town centers for exchange of creativity. And a town center today is as much a social exchange where teenagers hang out and learn how to become young adults and they exchange ideas around that. And if you think of a town centre as a place of exchange, the thing that's being exchanged will be changing from one decade to the next, one century to the next. But that need to to find a, a location in which exchange becomes an experience, when we think of it that way, the, the town centre's got a really bright future. Yeah, it's just got to find its purpose. It's just got to, yeah, and that purpose will change and flex with economic conditions and environmental conditions, you know, the climate crisis and temperature change and how town centres may may have to adapt to all of that. But that need for being close to each other to exchange whatever it is, that the town centre is going to still be there. We still need to be human, don't we? Yeah, (laughs) we need a place to express our humanity. I've never seen it or heard it described in that way before, which is, you know, the town centre, you know, is a place for exchange. And and it's so true, it's so true. But I suppose the challenge is, isn't there, we went through rapid growth. You know, if we talk about the UK as a country and there's a lot of buildings built, post-war and city centres, town centres built and you know, the urbanisation of them built to fit a purpose back then. And there's a lot of regeneration needed, isn't yeah, there? Yeah. And how do we face that as a country? Well, that I think, this is where urban design, going back to what I mentioned earlier in, in this podcast, that you know architects do the buildings and the planners plan the towns. And what urban designers have done is to try and bridge that connection. And this idea of post-war regeneration you've touched on there is that maybe for too long we built buildings that are just not flexible and adaptable um that they're built for a certain purpose that purpose might last a certain number of years and when it's um when it's no longer viable the building gets demolished because it can't be repurposed and um the best buildings the ones that and again working with the public we know the ones that they love the most and most admire are not necessarily old buildings or ones that have a certain traditional look to them what they're actually talking about is the flexibility and an old church that's been turned into a cinema we've worked with in, in one community and um, uh, smaller buildings that were converted to other uses over time. And, and so as the economics of a town change, um, the buildings can adapt to that relatively easily without the demolition and the cost and the upheaval. And that incremental change around the community where they feel it's a, a pace in, in time with their lifespans rather than the bulldozers coming in and um, wiping the slate clean and starting again. That sort of psychological upheaval is quite destabilising to communities. And I think that there are lessons there about the types of places that are more adaptable. And um, we're we're looking for that all the time. And there's current debates in the architectural press about buildings that may be demolished and not repurposed and and how we can better, better use what we've got. Okay. Brilliant. It's, it's just I'm just I'm sort of like fascinated by you know what you do and how you go about yeah. and doing it. And is there one site project 
that you've been involved in that you could perhaps describe and that you're particularly proud of, Richard? It's, um, it's what's been really interesting about the work with Ferrier Urbanism is the, vari- is the variety, uh, but the thread that runs through them is this, um, the sort of, the way in which we try and create a process through which um, non-professionals, um, community members or residents in an area that's affected by change can find a voice and get involved and feel empowered to um, influence what's happening. When, we've, when we're often appointed to a project, we, we encounter quite a lot of angry, frustrated people that um, think, feel that things are being done to them and that they can't resist it or they can't object to it and they don't know why often. And, and a lot of the work begins with a really a sort of light touch educational process. We'll sit with a, with a group maybe one evening and explain this is how the planning system works. This is how housing gets allocated. This is who builds the houses. This is how planning permission is granted. And um, just that, that little bit of demystifying the process can calm people down a bit. And they say, oh, OK, I understand now a little bit more about what's going on. We didn't really know this. It's quite an opaque process. So that, that question about a highlight, there was a project in Kent um, just a few years ago and we worked with the village there for three days straight. We began nine o'clock on a Tuesday morning and um, there was a, a chap there, he lived in the village and he sat on the front row with his arms folded, really, really fed up and frustrated and glaring at us saying, you know, who are you to come along here and, and try and help us? You know, you don't live here, you don't understand it. But over those next three days we talked about how it works we they led us on site visits they showed us the places that matter we tried to capture that with photograph and video and we sketched out ideas around how it might change and how their village plan could um, improve the the challenges that you know this this particular Mikey was called um, was complaining about and um, the other thing is we said on that first morning so I've only got an hour um, uh, and uh, three days later, we're still with us. <laughs> and on, on, the, on the Thursday night, we'd, we'd, we'd work flat out as a team. It was a brilliant team effort. And um, we'd, we'd sketched out basically the next 20 year plan. Um, and the, the village hall from the Tuesday morning, it was empty. The walls were empty. But by Thursday night, every bit of square meterage on the wall was covered in sketches and drawings and notes and, and ideas. And on the Thursday night at seven o'clock, we had about 200 people came in to find out what had been produced the sort of there was a bit of a buzz around the village that something was happening in the village hall and I stood back and watched Mike on the door welcoming people in taking them over to show them uh, the plan that we've made and I thought we've cracked it because he was the chap three days earlier that was um, resistant to all of this and now he felt it it belonged to him and that it, it was his plan and when we've achieved something like that, that's a fantastic highlight. That's amazing. Because our, our role is necessarily limited around the, the fee, the agreement. We were there for a certain amount of time. And then we have, we have to step away and we're working somewhere else. But if we can step away and leave uh, a community behind that feels much more um, enlightened about the process, much more upskilled is the phrase these days. You know, they, they know how things work and feel a sense of ownership over the the drawings and the ideas that we've helped them create, then we, we, that's the best bit, really. Wow, what a great example. And, you know, what a great experience to be able to reflect on. And I, I, would, I had a look at your website and I loved your approach to projects, which I think could be applied generally as a kind of 
feeling and an approach in, uh, to projects, which is you talk about connect, create, change. And I suppose that was a great example of that. Yes, yeah. That... But, you know, can you see that as a methodology that would apply to other projects? Yeah, um, I mean, outside of the urban design yeah. sector. Yeah, I think what we do as a, as a rule of thumb for all our projects is we're in listening mode from the get-go. The, the, the worst thing, I think, is to go in and say, this is what you need mm-hmm. to a, a group before you've even heard what they've got to tell you. And um, just listening to what they have to say, maybe challenging a few times, you know, why, why is that important and, and um, how did that happen and, and taking lots of notes, but giving them a platform to, to share it. And that's the connect bit. And then we take away a lot of what we've heard and say, well, what can we, how can we create something out of this and, um, and come back to them? And what, that, that's that translation phase, I suppose. You hear something from the group, you've got to translate that into a set of ideas and proposals, a design-led um, series of changes. Um, and you test that with them and say, you know, you told us these things, what if, and a lot of, what we, a lot of this sort of what if scenario planning, what if it was like this, what if it was like that, how would that meet? The challenges you've described and then that consensus can start to grow around it and that's and then you move into that final third phase of change and, and delivering a strategy document that that gives them that roadmap for change brilliant and I, but i suppose a lot of what you do is around you know if you took it back to a principle is the change curve isn't it and also the change curve the change curve that kind of piece around when, when change is going to happen I suppose this is the example of Mike. There's a lot of resistance. Oh, anger, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cha- and then there's not, this, this kind of piece around, you know, frustration, yes, disillusionment, yeah. engagement. Yeah, I had not heard the phrase, the change curve. But yeah, well, I mean, again, a lot's quite, although we'd have worked in, in, we've worked in London and Liverpool and, and uh, you know, larger cities as well. But when we work in a rural environment, what they often say to us is everything's perfect the way it is. We don't want it to change. It's, it's you know, we want to stop the clock. It's fine. But we will challenge that and say, um, well, it didn't always look like this. You know, um, it was bigger than it was previously. And they don't want new housing. They don't want things being built. Um, but then you, you sort of scratch the surface a bit and they'll say, well, you know, our primary school closed a few years ago and we really missed that. And we've lost our post office. And and then you think, well, maybe some extra housing here and some new residents would breathe, breathe a bit more life into it. And um, I mean, one... One really important example of that was where we set up a process. Again, a lot of what we do is designing a process to give people a voice. And um, in this particular one, we invited lots of um, stakeholders to present for 10 minutes. And one of those presenting was the the GP. And the GP said, um, if this village got an extra 150 homes, I'd be uh, eligible for a second GP and a practice nurse. And you could see in real time the atmosphere in the room change because they turned up to this event wanting no more houses. And they were also complaining about a lack of healthcare facilities. <laughs> and the connection was made not by us, but by the GP, who was you know, a respected member of the village. And suddenly you could see the light bulbs go on that if we got more housing, we could get that healthcare provision. If we get the housing in the right place, it could maybe deliver new families. And, and it opened up a new way of thinking. And um, yeah, it's that, that sense of the change curve, as you've described there, that... There'll be often a point, quite a dramatic point, where the attitude can shift about what change means. And it's seen, it's no longer seen as something scary and threatening, but seen as an opportunity. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm sort of a mantra we use is change is going to happen. Yeah. Are you in charge of it or is it just going to be something that's done to you? Mm. And, and in town planning terms, you know, you have the ability these days to try and 
lead that change through your own documents, your own reports, your own strategies. And obviously, there must be some frustration at the way perhaps the planning system works in the UK um, and that the slow pace that takes place, or is it just something you become resilient to? Uh, I am a, I'm a chartered town planner. I'm a member of the Royal Town Planning Institute. Um, uh, I'm also a member of the Urban Design Group and, uh, and other, other organisations. But um, the planning system is always, always in for criticism for being either too bureaucratic or too slow or, 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 again, not tough enough. It lets really terrible quality development get approval. It's maybe not got enough safeguards in it. It's, not, it's too lax. It doesn't um, prevent things that should never be built being built and I'm sure anyone listening to this podcast could point to something that they see on a regular basis and think how on earth did that get planning permission and um and therefore the system is maybe not strong enough um I don't think it's ever going to win it won't <laughs> I think we can learn from other countries that's what's of interest to me now about how you know you go to other places maybe the rest of Europe and think wow they've achieved a quality of life in their towns and cities that seems to have something special around it it could be anywhere in the world really and then and then trying to work out what systemic uh, issues politically or governance or the way the local authorities and local government works or how developers are obliged to do certain things in those mm-hmm. um, jurisdictions how they differ and um, you know, maybe maybe I think that's an that's an area that's always looked at, but um, we have the system we have. <laughs> we do, we do. Um, and if we're talking about, you've talked a lot already about you know community. You know, we talked about the town you know, and of city centre being a place of exchange, but you know, community is really important, isn't it? And feeling like you're part of community. Do you think in? Do you think community is as important as it once? was it's more important okay and i'm really fascinated by the relationship between the digital communities of the last 20 years and when i was an undergraduate in the early 90s i was on really early message boards talking about electronic music with people all around the world and there was this dawn of this connected and right that's not using ms dos by the way this is going back a long time and then of course uh the World Wide Web, the internet, email, the smartphone and social media. And, you know, you, you've seen these communities and it comes back to that point about exchange, that this idea of the need to feel connected and the need to a sense of belonging. I think the, 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 rever- the, the, the counterpoint to those virtual communities is physical space mm. and the role of the town square, the actual town square that's got buildings around the edge of it. It's got maybe trees in the middle of it. A market arrives on a Friday. Um, maybe cars park in it on a Monday. Uh, the music event happens on a Tuesday. The skateboarders take over at 8pm and <laughs> use it. And that physical space, which is community, you, different communities at different times of the week and different times of the day. Um, I think the, these virtual communities need a physical outlet. And I think the two go hand in hand, really. And I think that... The, um, I'm, I'm really optimistic about technology's role in community and I think it strengthens the need for really high quality public spaces Okay. because people will not people will once upon a time prior to that technological connectivity 
the way to meet your mates as a teenager was to go into town. Absolutely. But if you can meet them at the click of a button and on your smart screen, um, would you go into town? If town is maybe dirty or threatening or unwelcoming or unwelcoming to young people or unwelcoming to any generation, you'll stay put in your bedroom and, and connect. And rely on that digital connection. Yeah, but I think there's a yearning to be in a real place. So I think the physical spaces in our towns and cities have to really become, raise their game and become attractive enough to allow that physical connection. And the two then start to really support one another. Um, so I'm, I'm positive about that. But yeah, that, that sense of connection that town centres offer, and it's that the public spaces, the, the, and that's where urban design was such an attraction to me, that it's the gaps between buildings. If you ask anyone that, but what their memory is of a city or a town that they visited, they'll rarely ever describe the inside of a building. They won't, if they talked about a world city or a small town in the UK, they'll talk about the marketplace or the high street or the parks or the gardens or the bit by the river. Um, and it's the gaps between buildings that are the memorable image. And if we get those right, people, people will just spend time in them. Really well. Yeah, they'll go back to them or spend more time in them as they are. And if we go back to your own journey within business, what do you think some of your greatest challenges you've faced in business to get it to the point it is? Uh, well, I, the anxiety is, uh, it, no, it will, I don't think it's ever going to leave me about where the next project comes from. Okay. And I think that's, a, I suppose, the only way to rationalise that is that that's a good thing, to be <laughs> yeah. in business and, and never be complacent about the next contract and where it comes from. And there's always times where you think, you're looking ahead and you think, well, when we finish this project and that one, the order books are going to look a bit thin. And then, usually in those moments of that's when the phone rings or the email arrives and and the next one arrives so it's never dried up there's always peaks and troughs um but that challenge i suppose my challenge is becoming more confident around that and being able to plan around the fact that I could, that's how it is and i'm as i say 16 years in i still never really come to terms <laughs> with that feeling of um where the next one comes from um that's one challenge. That's a sort of my own psychological challenge with uh, the but That is understandable, isn't it? If you think about where you, why you created the business, it was to spend more time with children, yeah. family. So yeah. that means security. And it therefore, does, yeah. work or lack of work is a security piece, isn't it? It is. And it's also a sort of, there's a self-esteem and a sort of a, a dignity and a, a wanting to be valued by the clients and the communities that we work with. And obviously, if you're in demand, that those those um those positive experiences come with that and um so that that they're all linked in, in that area i mean other challenges um now at this point in the business i suppose are around recruitment and the brand the ferrier urbanism brand is in, in, inextricably linked with myself as an individual there have been team members you know many over the years that have come and gone younger younger sort of graduates who've joined the practice learnt a lot over two or three years or, f or four or five years and then moved on to um, progress their career elsewhere. Entirely understandable. And, uh, you know, I've really enjoyed giving them that experience as they, and then, ex you know, almost expected them to move on. It's, it's, it's how careers progress. So that this idea of the brand being linked to me, attracting future um, members of the team of a more senior position, I think will be a challenge because they would be 
under that shadow, as it were. They, but they would want to bring their own personality and their own involvement, which, I don't, which absolutely would, would welcome in their experience. So I think maybe the, that the challenge maybe shifted to more around collaborations rather Good. than growing the in-house team back. And I think at, the, at this moment in time, that's certainly the, the approach to it. That's to the focus. And I suppose you're in one of those industries where you can, can't you? You can come together as a project to collaborate with others. Yeah. And then disband, and then come together again. And, yeah, and, uh, exactly and, that. And over the over the years, we've worked with a great team of architects in London. Philip and James were, were terrific working with, and um, we're, we're we're in the middle of a preparation for quite an important project on the Isle of Wight. Um, working with a team that uh, have got similar expertise, but in, maybe coming at it from a different point of view, and um, and with Laura, who we work with as well. So. Assem- what's really been I really enjoy that assembling a team of skills for a per- certain period of time and then we all we all, <laughs> we all metaphorically high five each other at the end and then maybe we'll meet again and do it all again on another project yeah. and I think there's an agility to having a series of collaborators rather than having a team on board yeah. and I, I think that's the way to work for now for sure yeah perfect and what are the things you know aside from the projects what are the things that have given you joy in terms of your business over the last 16 years uh, aside from the actual content of the work, yeah. Um, there was certainly a certain, there is a sense of um, there is a sense of self um, determination around it. You know, um, something I've become uh, it's become uh, sort of natural, I suppose. But I have to somehow step out and think, well. I am my own boss, and I have been for a long time now. <laughs> and, I, I, and that's not something to be taken for granted, in the sense that a lot of people who set up their own businesses say, not un, not unreasonably, but I, I'd like to be my own boss. And that's and that has happened, but that wasn't my driving no. force. But it naturally becomes part of the part of the deal. You are your own boss, and I think that ability to, yeah, that's been a, 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 a absolute, really really rewarding. Um, uh, there's, a, there's the pressures for where the next project comes from that you know you are responsible totally and utterly for the successes of what you do and that has its own pressures but when it when it works out and the projects have turned turned out well and then you also factor in the fact you were the architect of that you were the boss of that project yeah. it does leave a very special feeling definitely definitely one of the definite pleasures of you know controlling your own destiny as far as you can yeah. and being your own boss because there yeah. is a myth isn't there a little bit there but- was yeah I, 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 it was um world service radio i can't remember who said i should remember but um she said there's three things that that really drive value and if i can get them right the first one was mastery of a topic feeling on top of a subject and knowing knowing something very well being a sort of expert in it you'll never ever be the uh, there's always something more to learn but finding value in learning as much as you can um, that whatever it is you're doing have value to others and the way communities have responded positively to what we do that, that's, that's a very important um, aspect to it and then that third element is that self-determination and autonomy and being able to choose how to do it and when to do it you know, getting up really early or working late and, and, not, and being able to choose those aspects and when you put all those three together uh, I remember us saying that, that you've, you've cracked it you've got a job that you've got a it's not just a job. You've got something in life that really matters. Yeah. And I was I was working late while that radio program was playing in the background, and I, I suddenly I scribbled them down as quickly as I could, and I realised that all three were happening to me. 
and I thought, right, that's great. That's um, yeah, that's good. Brilliant. And I always end, and it's probably a nice segue into this. You know, I always end the podcast saying, you know, what is your personal definition of success, Richard? Um. Oh, I don't. Uh, I suppose there's lots of ways of measuring that. Um, everyone's going to have a different metric or a different measurement. Um, I'm going to really. Uh, I'm going to say I've still, I've still to work that one out. Still to work that. <laughs> still one out. to work it out. That's yeah. a fair response and a fair answer, Richard. I've loved. I've been fascinated by our discussion. I've loved your thoughtfulness. I've loved your approach to business and to life. Um, Thank you for being a great guest on the Evolve to Succeed podcast. But if, as we close, if people do want to know more about you, where can they go? Yeah, thanks, Warren. I mean, I've, I've, I've really enjoyed being, being a guest on this. If you, if you want to know more, um, our website is uh, ferrier-urbanism.com. That's F-E-R-I-A-urbanism.com. Um, and on there, there's some links to social media and and our LinkedIn uh, profile and what we're up to so you can find more through that. Brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Warren. Thank you for listening to the Evolve to Succeed podcast. My hope with every episode is that you've learned something new or heard something that challenged your way of thinking and further motivated you on your path towards becoming a more knowledgeable, informed and inspired individual and business leader. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us by rating, reviewing and subscribing. We really value your feedback and would love to have you along for future episodes. And please don't forget to learn more about Evolve by going to evolvemembers.com. Thank you for listening. See you next week.